today, our, the story that we're digging into today, the specific story, actually has very little to do with Joseph. Um, but if there is one thing that we could take away from the story of Joseph thus far, um, it, it's probably that m my story is not my own, just as Joseph's story was not his own. And neither is yours. If you think about it, if Joseph had been the author of his story, um, I honestly don't think he would choose to be the favorite son. I don't think he would choose to be hated by his brothers or sold into slavery. Who chooses that, right? Nobody chooses to be falsely accused of rape um, or thrown into prison um, or forgotten about by those who could have given him relief. We just, we don't choose that. No, nobody chooses all of that. Um, in the pit of prison, I don't think that Joseph asked God to make him the grand vizier of the most powerful kingdom in the known world or to give him the power to save the entire known world or then ask God for the opportunity to save his family who at that point was half a world away. I, I could be wrong, and the scriptures certainly don't give us these details, uh, but based on what I know about myself and what I know about human nature, uh, my inclination when I am in difficulty or trouble is to cry out for the basic level of relief. Make this pain stop. Get me out of here, right? Get these people off my back. Save me from this tragedy. Give me enough money for X so Y doesn't happen. I can think back to specific times in life, whether it be graduate school or just parenting, and I can vividly recall asking God for grace and strength to get through this class, this semester, the current week, for God to make this headache that I'm suffering end, or for such and such presentation to go well. And all, there's nothing wrong with asking God to help you in, in immediate circumstances, but it's easy to get wrapped up in the moment and forget that there is a larger-than-me story going on in the world. A larger-than-me divine plan can become the furthest thing from our minds. When I was rereading the story of Joseph and began fo focusing on today's text, um, I realized my, my sermon and, and the scripture that we're going to be digging into today really has very little to do with Joseph. He's kind of a footnote, um, but I think this is an important and appropriate because Joseph's story was not his own, and it happened in a broader context of scripture and, and everything going on in the story in the larger story of scripture. So let's just review really quickly where we have been. Um, Joseph, if you remember the last, last week and the, the week before, he's saving the world um, from certain death by starvation and has now saved his family twice. Uh, Joseph has tested his brothers and finally revealed himself to them. At the end of the last chapter, Pharaoh invites Joseph's family to Egypt. 
Joseph's brothers go home to their father, Jacob, and Jacob, who has thought for decades that Joseph, his favorite son, was dead, has now has, has renewed strength to go and see Joseph for himself. We're going to pick up the story in Genesis 46. So Israel, is another name for Jacob, uh, he set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to God, to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us this time to worship you. We ask that the words that I speak today would be yours. You would prepare the hearts of all who hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you could see from just the text itself, this episode in Joseph's story is really about Joseph's dad, who is Jacob, or Israel. And at this point in the story, Jacob is very close to the end of his life. But to understand everything that's going on in this in this story, in this passage, um, we need to review some Genesis 101. So I'm going to give you the cliff notes, like super duper cliff notes version. Um, Abraham, we're going to go back a couple generations. Abraham is the elderly, childless man God calls to faith and for whom God made a covenant in which God promised to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him and the whole earth through him, and to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, or what's often called the promised land. Abraham and his wife Sarah have a son, Isaac. Now, fast forward, Isaac grows up. He has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob is the younger of the two sons, and custom would have it that Esau should get the covenantal blessing. But God says it will go to Jacob. Now, Isaac plays favorites, and he favors Esau. And he tries to give Esau the covenantal blessing. But Jacob deceives his father and takes the covenantal blessing for himself. Now, that's another sermon altogether, okay? Um, Jacob then spends decades fleeing from his brother Esau. And after Jacob has two wives and many children, he returns to the land of Canaan and makes peace with his brother. As Jacob is returning to the land of Canaan and is preparing to make peace with Esau, Jacob physically wrestles with some guy all night um, and refuses to let him go unless this seemingly random guy blesses him. Now, very quickly, we find out that this stranger, this random guy, is actually God himself, and he gives Jacob a new name. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, 
because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, there is a key moment that is relevant um, in Jacob's life to our text today. As he is fleeing from his brother Esau after stealing the birthright, Jacob is exhausted and he has a dream of angels ascending and descending on a stairway to heaven. In Genesis 28, it tells us, there above, above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All people of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, there, we're going to return exactly to the specific significance of this dream because we can't really take it all in in the broader picture until we have a couple other pieces of information. Now, you see, God is faithful, and he brings Jacob and his family back to the land of Canaan. Um, where we are in the story now, right, long past this dream, Jacob and his children are living in the land of Canaan, they're increasing in number and living and experiencing the blessings of God. They are living exactly what God promised here in this dream. There is this pesky famine that they're dealing with, but otherwise it's all good. Jacob, he receives incredible news, right? Joseph, his favorite son, is actually alive and inviting Jacob and all that is his to come to the land of Egypt. Now, an invitation like this at Jacob's age and in Jacob's world, it is not like an invitation to your mom's lake house for the weekend. This is more like the Oregon Trail. Um, back in the day, right, the real Oregon Trail, not the video game, but, you know, it, it imitates, it tries. Um, back in the day, if you were truly to go on the Oregon Trail, you would pack up everything you owned and say goodbye forever to the people you left behind. And that's what Jacob does. It says he packs up all that was his. He knows that he is not likely to return to the land, to this promised land. And, and this is significant. Um, details are incredibly important in scripture. Sometimes we are told what someone looks like or a special feature that they have or that what they were wearing, but usually not. Sometimes we are told that so-and-so wandered in the wilderness, and sometimes we are told exactly where they went. So when we are given a detail, like a location or a physical description of someone, we ought to take note. Sometimes the detail will lend authenticity to the story, right? It's not made up. It happens in real places with real people. Sometimes it sheds light on an aspect of the story we might have otherwise missed. Now, a detail we are given in this story is where exactly Jacob goes. We are told that his caravan reaches Beersheba. Um, so let's look here at a Bible map because it will help us to understand a little bit more. Where even is Beersheba? So 
this right here at the top of the red line here, this is Beersheba. This blue body of water, this is the Mediterranean Sea. We have the Egypt, the Delta, the, the Nile Delta is over here. We have the land of Egypt. And this green line is the, the route that scholars believe is the route that, jo uh, let me make sure I get the name right, that Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, that they, they took him along here. This city up here, Dothan, right? That's where Joseph goes and finds his brothers with their sheep up here in Dothan. This purple line, this is where Jacob wanders and where Joseph and his family, they, they, they're all over this land of Israel over here. And Beersheba is here at the bottom, very close to the edge of the land of Canaan because this here is desert. This is wilderness, even called the wilderness of Shur. Um, and so this red line, this is the route that they believe that Joseph's brothers and Jacob, this is the route they believe that they took to and from Egypt when they needed to go for grain. And they come here and Goshen here, Goshen, this is a little preview. Goshen is the land of, it, the part of Egypt that Pharaoh gives to the children of Israel. So all this to show you that Beersheba here, um, Beersheba is kind of, if Hebron is, is kind of the home base for a lot of the time in Jacob's life. And so he has to travel south, right? He's on his way out of, the, of Canaan. He's on his way out of the promised land. And he stops here uh, at the kind of the edge of the land of Israel, the promised land. He hasn't left yet. Um, now, Beersheba comes up often in the book of Genesis. And initially I thought, well, you know, I'm learning a lot, um, but I'm not sure if there's significance worth mentioning in my sermon. Until I went back to our passage today, and it says, when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, usually in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when it talks about God of your fathers, it usually takes it back to Abraham, like it did in, um, what did we just read? In Genesis 28, uh, 28 where, where he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. Right? But here, in our text today, it says, just the God of his father, Isaac. So I began looking where in the life of Isaac, Beersheba might have been important. And lo and behold, um, Beersheba is where Isaac goes and camps out when there is a famine in the land. Isaac takes his family and he's thinking, I'm gonna, I think I should go to Egypt because there's famine here and I don't know if we can survive. And he goes to Beersheba and Isaac offers sacrifices and asks God, should I go to Egypt? What do you think God told Isaac? Well, he tells Jacob very clearly here in this story today, don't be afraid, go to Egypt. But he tells Isaac, do not go to Egypt. So before God speaks to Jacob, I, I ask myself, where is Jacob's mind? Like, why, why do we have this story? 
God, God's answer to Jacob tells us that Jacob was afraid. God says, do not fear, right? God doesn't say things like that without there being a reason for it. Based on Jacob's history, based on the dream that he had, the promises that were given to him, what his father did when he came to this exact spot that we're told in scripture that they stopped here and, got, and Jacob worshiped. This is what I think is going through Jacob's mind. I think he believes, he says, he, something along the lines of, he's come, I've come to the southernmost edge of the promised land. God promised me in my dream that he will be with me and he will watch over me wherever I go and that he will bring me back to this land, which God already did. God promised not to leave me until he has done what he promised. He did what he promised. So is God still with me? Is God still watching over me? Is, he, is God with me and watching over me where I go now? I have packed everything I own and I am leaving the land God promised and I will probably never return. Should I be doing this? My dad worshipped here at Beersheba at this very place when there was a famine long ago and God told him not to go down to Egypt. So I'm going to go worship there too. I want to see Joseph before I die again, but my life is not my own. I'm going to worship. Now the phrase, go down to Egypt, is used all over the book of Genesis particularly, but all over the Old Testament too. The ancients did not have a north-south view of geography like we do. Um, the, the phrase makes sense to us because our maps are oriented north and south, right? And from the land of Israel, Egypt is down. There is a downness to it. But the ancients didn't think about it like that. Um, you go across land, right? There's nothing down about traveling across land. In the ancient mind, you go down into a valley or down into a well or down into a pit or down into a grave. So the phrase down into Egypt is more a characterization of Egypt rather than a description of geography. It means to go into exile, possibly cut off from God, cut off from the promises, from the blessings, from the land that is yours, from the heritage. So this moment in Jacob's life, this is huge. This, in this huge moment, Jacob does not form a committee, but he could have with all the sons and the children, right? If you continue reading in the chapter, it just, it's a list of all the people and things that are coming with him. Jacob does not seek confirmation of what he wants. He wants to go see Joseph. He doesn't seek confirmation from his friends, his family, his social media. He doesn't consult Google. 
He doesn't even check in with the meteorologist. He goes to worship. Now, circumstances in our lives can often confound us. Decisions we make come back to bite us. Sadness can overwhelm us. Anger fuels hatred and exhausts us. Questions without answers abound. Is God with me? Is he here in this pain? Where are you, God? What is happening? Should I be doing this? It's so easy to get wrapped up in the moment. And a larger-than-me divine plan becomes the furthest thing from our minds. And in all of this, we ought to worship because our story is not our own. God is the author of our stories. And God's answers to questions that seem to have no answers, and even the ones that have simple answers like, should I go to Egypt? Um, will not always be the same from one situation to the next. When Isaac worshipped at this exact same spot, God told him not to go to Egypt. He was trying to seek refuge for his family in very similar circumstances. Sometimes you will go in exile. You will go into exile in peace, like Jacob does here. Sometimes God will say no exile for you, like he said to Isaac. And sometimes you will be enslaved in exile, like Joseph or the people of Israel by the time we reach the book of Exodus. Some of you may see the redemption of God, as many did in the book of Exodus. But some of you may die in exile, like generations did before Moses. This truth remains the same, no matter which one of those circumstances you find yourself in. Your story is not your own, so worship God, who is the author. Some of you may find yourself in extraordinary circumstances, completely humbled that you're even still alive. But we cannot foolishly expect that belief in God will spare us from terrible fates. That Jesus in our lives gives us magic to dodge bullets. Or that being right about what we believe means we can be cruel or dismissive to those who disagree with us. If you are right about what you believe, your life, your words, your actions will transform you into something less and less like you. You will become more and more Christ-like. John the Baptist got it right when he said, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. And worship is how we tune our hearts to the reality that Jesus must become greater and I must become less. My story is not my own. Jacob demonstrated his agreement that his story was not his own when he responded to God's voice calling his name in our passage today. Jacob says, here I am. Now don't be fooled. 
Um, God is not looking for Jacob, like they're meeting for coffee in a crowded coffee shop, right? I'm over here, God. I saved us seats, right? That's not that kind of here I am. The Hebrew word that Jacob uses is the word hine, and it especially, it's especially a response to a call indicating the readiness of the person addressed to listen and or obey. This here I am is more like yes sir to a commanding officer. Here I am sir, ready for my assignment. My priorities are not my focus. What are my orders? This ought to be our attitude on Sunday morning, on every morning, all the time. Worship is equally about aligning my heart with God's will as it is about honoring God. It's equally about honoring God and aligning my heart's with God will, God's will. And both of, things, both of these things involve conscious effort. And, and it's very hard to just sequester that to one day of the week and have it really be a transformational change. Worship has to be more than just sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. It has to be active. Sunday morning worship is not a performance where we quietly say amen after the prayer. We sing some songs. We listen to a lecture. And we go home, have lunch, and live our life the rest of the time. True worship is actively choosing to remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done for us and saying, Lord, I'm ready to listen and obey. I know for my five-year-old, I don't accept that just one day a week. So, I shouldn't expect that God only expects that from me one day a week. Worship ought to be a daily habit. If you're like me, it's far too easy to be self-centered, self-absorbed. Once a week is far too little. The noise of our culture frames you and me as the kings of our own lives, but nothing could be further from the truth. I must become less. Jesus must become greater. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating for you to stop doing anything and everything that you get pleasure from or to only do things specifically ordained in scriptures. What I want to encourage you to do is examine your life. What habits are filling your days? And how do those habits reflect who you are in Christ? Do they? The Psalms say, this is the day the Lord has made. This day, every day. God cares about you and your big questions, as well as your habitual routines, things that we don't even talk about because they are literally the definition of boring. Are you ready to say, yes, sir, here I am, rain or shine, big day or normal day? I have, I have three takeaways for you. They're in your notes. First of all, when God calls you into exile or suffering, go and worship there and on the way. Your story is not your own. So, 
So cling, cling to the promises of God and look for him in the suffering. Give yourself reminders. Joseph named his children for the blessings and the goodness of God in the land of his affliction. I think that's such a, an awesome reminder. There is never a day when I don't wake up and speak my child's name. So put reminders in your way. You don't have to go and rename your children, okay? But just find ways to put reminders in your way that you're going to come across every day, whether or not you intentionally meant to think of it. Put those reminders in your way so that in the midst of your suffering, you remember who the author of your story is. The second thing I want you to take away is when you don't know what to do, worship. And do not fear. Did you know the command, do not fear, is one of the most repeated commands in all of scripture? Do not fear. It's, it's really hard to take that in and apply it to our lives, right? But we can learn from what Jacob says. He says, here I am, right? And God says, I am your God. Do not fear. Your story isn't your own. I am God. And finally, when you worship, be ready to listen and obey. These, all of these things can be very difficult to apply to our lives, right? It's, it's really easy for me if from here at the pulpit say, go home and worship. But there are, there are ways, there are tools, there are things that you can do. God has given us the scriptures. He's given us the book of Psalms, which is essentially a book of prayers. If you don't know what to pray, go to the Psalms. They'll teach you 